You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Are we clapping for announcements now, or is, uh, I, hope, I hope you're not clapping for me. <laughs> well, good morning. It's, it's really good to see all of you. Um, I hope you're having a good weekend so far. I know that for a lot of you families, this is your last weekend before the kids go back to school. And uh, I'm sure that this is none of you in here, um, but I've noticed in my social media feeds this week that there are a lot of parents who are really excited about their kids going back to school. Uh, again, I, I know that's not you, since we, uh, as believers, understand that children are a blessing from the Lord, and we want to savor every minute with them, and so I know that's not you, but, but just so you can stay, you know, relevant with your coworkers and neighbors and all of that, I thought I'd uh, share with you a few of the memes I've seen so far this week. So uh, go ahead and go to the first one here, Ting. Yeah, that's parents stampeding away from the school after dropping them off. Um, how about the next one here? I'm not sure what this lady's doing, but I think she's very thankful that it's back to school time. Uh, what about this one? It says, uh, is it just me or did mom seem a little too happy about the first day of school? I was a walker in elementary, so I understand that. This is my favorite one, though. Uh, I know school doesn't start till next week. Just walk slow, right? I know a lot of your kids are going back on Wednesday, so maybe just, you know, this afternoon, just go, you know, go, go ahead, guys. Uh, and then for you Braveheart fans out there, it just says, kids at school, freedom, right? Well, again, I know that's none of you because you wouldn't dare think thoughts like that. But, um, again, I just wanted to help update you on what's going on in broader culture. Um, now, my wife and I, we actually homeschool. And so our memes look a little bit different, right? I mean, so let me show you one my wife sent me this week. You might not be able to read it, but it says, wait, Summer, come back. I'm sorry for what I said when my back was sweaty, <laughs> right? Because it's, you know, in about a week, it's going to be getting busy time for us at our house and, and all of that. So anyway, just wanted to share some of those with you. But uh, we are going to continue on in our series in the Gospel of Luke this morning. And uh, as we do, I just want to open up with a question, and, and that is this. What has been the greatest experience of your life? Now, I know for many of us, it's, it's when we came to know Jesus and we started following him. But, but if we put those categories aside, what has been the greatest experience of your life? Now, I know a question like that is really hard to answer. It's kind of like when someone asks you, what's your favorite movie? I mean, it's, it's just a hard question to, to think through them all and pick just one. I mean, for many of us, our, our greatest experience in life revolve around family, uh, you know, when we, when we got married or when we had that first kid uh, or something like that. Uh, maybe for some of us, our greatest experience is around something adventurous, like when we, you know, hiked Mount Rainier or, you know, for us Ohio people, when we went to Old Man's Cave or uh, maybe whitewater rafting or uh, skydiving or something like that. Uh, maybe for some of us, it's, it's travel-related. It's, it's uh, getting to visit and see amazing places around uh, the U.S. and around the world. I know for me, one of my uh, coolest experiences uh, that involved travel was uh, because of my old job, I was able to fly first class from New York to London on a British Airways international flight. Now, I don't know how many of you have had this opportunity to fly first class on an international flight. Um, I know I never would have, apart from these uh, really unique circumstances where, again, with my old job where I got to do it, and I'm sure it'll never happen again. But in case you haven't, let me just tell you, it's pretty nice. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's like, it was, it was good. Um, in fact, let me show you a picture of what it looked like. Um, 
got a little like everyone had their own little cubicle area and you had you know obviously your own tv there and and uh it, it was pretty great now the thing that sort of ruined my experience though was that it, it was an overnight flight and i was going to be arriving in london at like 6 30 a.m and so because of that i was torn because on the one hand you know i really wanted to enjoy this experience i wanted to live it up you know like called the stewardess over like 12 times just to say hi and, and get whatever free stuff I could get and, you know, watch like a dozen movies and eat all the food I could eat. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I wanted to get some sleep. And I didn't want to be exhausted when I landed because I was only going to have a few uh, short days there and I wanted to do some sightseeing and all of that. And so, again, I was a little bit torn. And so, unfortunately, uh, or I guess you could say fortunately, depending on how you look at it, uh, the chairs and the cubicles in first class in a British Airways flight, well, the thing about them is that they actually turn into like a full-blown bed. Um, I mean, we're not talking like lean your seats back a couple inches and have a little extra leg room. It's like, no, it's like, it's like nighty nighttime, right? Like you snuggle up to your blankie and your pillow and you get, you get some good sleep. And so basically what happened was I ended up sleeping through pretty much the whole experience, you know, and um, I'll never get that opportunity again and I'm very sad about it but um, what we're going to see in our, our story today in the gospel of Luke is that three of Jesus's main disciples almost do what I did that being sleeping through a really amazing experience except instead of it being a first class flight to London their experience happens to be one of the greatest if not the greatest experiences any human being could uh, have, have ever ex uh, you know been a part of this side of heaven. And fortunately, for their sakes and also for ours, they woke up in time to, to see it and to witness it. And so, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 9. Um, if you need to borrow one of our pew Bibles, it's on page 867. And we're going to start in verse 28, but before we go there, let me just open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we do invite you into this place. Thank you that this is your word. Thank you that it's reliable. It's accurate. Lord, thank you that even as it says in, uh, in Timothy, Lord, that, that it's, uh, it's there for our reproof and correction, for training in righteousness. And so, Lord, we just we thank you for it. We ask that you would speak this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray that all of us would leave today differently than when we came in, that we would see Jesus high and exalted. And I pray this in his name. Amen. So as we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to look at five different aspects, or, or I guess you could say five different parts. And uh, the five different parts are this. First, we'll look at the transfiguration. Secondly, the witnesses. Third, the suggestion. Fourth, the affirmation. And then finally, the command. And so uh, starting with the first one here, the transfiguration, uh, let's read verses 28 and 29. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And so if you were here last week, we went through the section of Luke 9 where Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then right after that, there are these three little sections, these three little conversations that he has with his disciples and in the first conversation, in verses 18 to 20, we see there that, that Peter confesses that Jesus is indeed the Christ. He's the Messiah. 
And then right after that, in the second conversation, we see Jesus tell his disciples for the first time that he is going to have to suffer and die, but that he will be raised on the third day. And again, we kind of have to put ourselves in their shoes. That is not what they would have been expecting Jesus to say. And so that, that happens. But then if that wasn't enough, right after that, in the last conversation, in verses 23 to 27, Jesus adds to it by telling them this. He says, not only am I going to suffer and die, but you guys, if you want to follow me, you too will have to suffer. You too are going to have to face rejection. You're going to have to lose your life in order to find it. You're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross in order to follow me. But then he concludes that that conversation by saying this in verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, as Chris pointed out last week, we can't be 100% certain or dogmatic here, but, but I think that there's a very good chance that this verse is referring to the transfiguration. And I think that that's particularly, uh, it's particularly compelling to think that, given the fact that uh, the transfiguration takes place immediately following the statement. You see, Jesus says, some of you disciples are, are, are going to see the kingdom of God before you die. And then the very next verse says, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. You see, we can't know for sure if this is what Jesus had in mind. But, but as we walk through the story, what we're going to see is that these three guys certainly get a unique glimpse. They get a sneak preview into the fullness of the kingdom. And so what exactly is happening here? Well, it says there that Jesus went up a mountain to pray. Now, we don't know exactly what mountain it was. Um, some have argued that it was Mount Tabor in southern Galilee. Um, others have argued uh, that it was Mount Hermon near Caesarea Philippi. Again, we, we don't know, which is why most people just f- simply call it the Mount of Transfiguration. But it says there that, that as he was praying... The appearance of his face was altered and that his clothing became a dazzling white. Now this this account, this story is also included in the other two synoptic gospels in Matthew and Mark. And in their accounts, they, they say that Jesus was transfigured before them. And the word transfigured is, is from the Greek word metamorphu, uh, where we get our English word metamorphosis. And the word simply means to transform or to change. Now, Luke here uses a a slightly different Greek word, but they essentially mean the same thing. And most people think that Luke chose not to use the the Greek word metamorpho because uh, his primary audience was Gentile, and there was some confusion in the pagan religions about their pagan gods. And and so, again, just to avoid that, he picked a different word, but they they mean the same thing. Now, Matthew also adds in his account that that Jesus' face shone like the sun and that his clothing became white as light. Some translations talk about it being like lightning, like a flash of lightning. Now, now Mark, on the other hand, doesn't say anything about his face, but he does say that his clothing became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, what we see here from these descriptions is that the disciples are getting a glimpse of Jesus being revealed in his glory. See, it says at the end of, uh, of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, and in and, and one of the last chapters, chapter 21, uh, it's, it's describing what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. And, and in verse 23, it says the city, uh, that being the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, it says that it will have no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, 
and its lamp is the Lamb. And so again, here is Jesus. He's praying. And as he's praying, he begins to emanate light and glory from his body. It's as if a, a veil is being temporarily lifted. And, th- and this is probably a bad analogy, but as I thought about this week, I kept thinking of that picture of Superman pulling back his clothes, and you see the S. It's like Jesus is, is pulling back uh, you know, his, his dress or his robe, whatever they wore, but he's, he's pulling it back. He's pulling back part of his humanity, and he's allowing us to see that glorious divinity. And so here he is. He's being transfigured. But let's, let's go to the next aspect of the story, which is the witnesses. Look now at verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. I mean, what, what's the deal with these three guys always sleeping while Jesus is praying, right? Like, this isn't the only time this happens. I mean, it's like, do, do these guys have narcolepsy? Like, does Jesus need to, like, pray over them and heal them? Or is it worse than that? Do they just find his prayers particularly boring? Like, ah, he's just going on and on, and let's take a nap. I, I don't know. But, but here they are. They're, they're sleeping. Jesus is praying. He's being revealed in his glory. And as he's doing that, Moses and Elijah show up. And they start having a conversation with him. Now, maybe that doesn't sound crazy to you, but that is crazy, right? I mean, Moses uh, died like 1,500 years before Jesus was even born, and Elijah got taken up into heaven like eight or 900 years before that. And yet, here they are, and they're hanging out with Jesus like he's an old friend. And not only, they're, not, they're just not hanging out. I mean, it's, Luke tells us what they're talking about. It says there in verse 31, they were talking about his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word departure, it's fascinating. In the Greek, it's the word for exodus. If you, I think in the ESV, if you have in front of you, it have a footnote that says exodus. And so here are these two guys, and they're talking with Jesus about his exodus, which he's about to accomplish. And yet here are the disciples. You know, they're waking up from good old sleepy time nap, and they begin to see all of this take place. And there's so many things we could say about this, this particular scene, and, and particularly as we think about why these two men. I mean, why Moses? Why Elijah? Well, there are all kinds of theories and, and guesses, and, and some of which honestly seem pretty out there. I mean, one, one I read this week talked about, uh, you know, it's these two guys because they represent the kingdom, what the kingdom's going to look like. Uh, you have Moses, who, who represents people in the kingdom who will die. Um, but then you have Elijah, who represents people who will be taken up when Christ returns, and so that's why these two. Well, I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, our, our own Cory Bacher would, would, would disagree. He would say that Elijah was killed as he was taken up, but, but either way, I don't think that that's why they are here. I think that they're here because in the Jewish mind, in the Jewish religion, these two men represent uh, kind of collectively the law and the prophets, and so here you have these, these two representatives of the law and the prophets, everything that, that the Jewish religion held to that instructed them, and yet here they are, they're standing as a kind of witness now to Jesus and to his authority and his glory and his, uh, his prominence. And what is it that they are talking about? They are talking about Jesus going to the cross to die. You see, I, I don't know if we fully appreciate how 
hard it would have been for the disciples to understand the fact that Jesus was going to suffer and die. I mean, as Chris pointed out last week, they were expecting, uh, you know, Peter had announced that Jesus was the Messiah, and they were expecting the Messiah to march into Jerusalem and to declare himself king of Israel and to kick Rome out and to begin to rule and to reign in his kingdom. And yet, as we saw just a few verses ago that we looked at last week, no, guys, Jesus is saying, no, guys, that's not the plan. The plan is, is that I'm actually going to suffer and die. And if, and if that wasn't clear enough, now we have here a scene where Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah about the very same thing, talking about his death. And so, again, what we see here is that these two men, they, they serve as a kind of witness to the truthfulness and even the prophecies that were given concerning Jesus' death and resurrection. I mean, what the, what, what, what the disciples didn't understand was that Jesus, yes, he was the Messiah, the, the, the one that would come in, in the likeness of David, the, the king who would rule. But he was also, in, as it talks about in the book of Isaiah, he was going to be the suffering servant. And so uh, certainly when, when we see them having a conversation with Jesus, one of the things we notice is that they're not surprised. They're not taken aback by Jesus' plan to go to the cross. And again, there's more we could say about these two men and why, why they're there, but let's, let's keep going and look at the third aspect of our story, which is the suggestion. Pick it up in verse 33. And as they were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, I love that Luke adds that little qualifier in there at the end of the verse. You know, maybe he was just being kind to Peter. Maybe Peter pulled him aside at church one day like, hey, I, I hear you're writing a, a book about what happened. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to tell you what to do or anything. But, but, you know, if you get to that transfiguration story and all of that, can you just, like, say something there like, I didn't know what I was saying, you know? It was like, I, I, I mean, I don't know if you realize this, but only three of us got to do that. And I happened to be one of the three, and, you know, we saw the glory, and we were overwhelmed, and, and uh, I just, you know, I sort of said something dumb, and I couldn't help it. So, you know, just put that in there, right? Maybe that's what happened. I don't know. But what we know is that Mark, who uh, many believe Peter was his main source for his gospel, Mark says it like this. He said, he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I mean, it's, <laughs> I think it probably didn't help the fact that they were just waking up from sleeping, right? I mean, uh, kind of like earlier this week, we uh, were putting our kids to bed, and, and we have two boys and two girls, and they share rooms. And so the way that we do it is, uh, you know, one of us will take the boys, and the other will take the girls. We pray for them, get them in their PJs, all of that, and then we switch. Well, a few nights ago, uh, I started with the boys, and Faith started with the girls. And then in that, uh, that process of switching, Faith got a little distracted, and it took a little longer to get into the boys' room. Well, by the time she got in there, they had already fallen asleep. And so she, uh, you know, still was like going to pray for them and kiss them goodnight. And, and as she was doing that, Hudson, our oldest, shot up out of his bunk bed and mumbled something we think in English. And then he immediately laid back down and went back to sleep. So maybe, maybe that's what happened to Peter. He's like, I'm just sleep talking. I don't know. But what we do know and what the scripture tells us is that they were terrified. They're seeing Jesus in his glory. The veil has been temporarily pulled back, and he's talking to two of the greatest human beings in all of history. Again, men who lived hundreds and hundreds of years before this. And so this is a pretty cool experience, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's not, a first, it's not a first class flight to London, but it's pretty good. I'm just kidding. No, this is incredible. 
I mean, like I said at the beginning of the message, this, this is one of, if not the greatest experiences anyone this side of heaven could witness and be a part of. And so again, in this moment, this incredible moment, we see here that Peter pipes up with a suggestion. He says, Jesus, it's, it's really good that we're here, right? How, how about I build you and Moses and Elijah each a tent? Now maybe you're thinking, that's, that's really odd. Why would he ask to build a tent? Well, I mean, if he was you, you would say, can I have a selfie? You know, can we, can we document this? But, but he suggests a tent. Well, the reason he suggested a tent is because a lot of commentators think that, that it's in reference to the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Uh, which, if you don't know what that is, it was an annual festival that, that the Israelites would, would uh, have each year to celebrate God's faithfulness during the Exodus. But it also had this aspect to it where, where they looked forward to that day when the Messiah would reign on earth. And so perhaps Peter uh, is thinking, guys, this is it. This is the moment where Jesus is going to start to rule and to reign. And so as a way to celebrate that, as a way to, to honor Jesus and, and to honor these men, let's, let's make three tents, one for each. Now, the thing is, is that um, others actually have, they've argued that maybe it's not that. Maybe Peter was just trying to prolong the experience. You know, because it actually says there in verse 33 that, that Moses and Elijah were leaving. They, they were departing. And so maybe, you know, Peter's like, wait, 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 guys. I'm, I'm going to build you each a tent and we can kind of stay up here on the mountain and just really enjoy one another. I, I don't know which one it was, but what we do know is that his suggestion was misguided. And the reason we know his suggestion was misguided is because of what happens uh, in the next part of our story, uh, which is the, the affirmation. And so let's look at it there. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. And so literally... What it tells us there in verse 34 is that God the Father interrupts and cuts off Peter in the middle of his suggestion. And he does it by descending on them in a cloud and by speaking this out loud, this affirmation about Jesus. And what the Father says is he says, this is my son, my chosen one. Now there are so many things about this scene that are incredible. I mean, for one, the, the very fact that God the Father approaches them and comes to them in a cloud is amazing and it's very significant. A cloud was the main way that God's presence was manifested in the days of Moses during the Exodus. You see, you had the, the pillar of fire that led them by, by night, but you had a cloud that led them during the day. Not only that, you had multiple times throughout uh, that period of being in the wilderness where God the Father would, would descend on Mount Sinai in the form of a cloud. Let me, let me show you a few of these here. In Exodus 19.9, God, in, in talking to Moses and saying how he is going to approach the people of Israel, he says this, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Now, a little bit later on, a few verses on from that, the Lord actually does what he, what he told Moses he was going to do. And in verse 16, it says this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. 
When Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, you know, big props for Moses going up the mountain, right? Like, I, I think if you and I had seen that scene and, and the mountain tremble and the cloud over Mount Sinai and fire and smoke and all of that, I think we'd be like, uh, just one second, I, I left something in my tent, I'll be right back, you know, and I think we would have ran for our lives. But, but to Moses' credit, he goes up. But this isn't the only time that this scene or, or something like it happens where, where God descends on Mount Sinai in a cloud. In fact, after a while, Moses, of, of spending time with, with uh, God up on the mountain, eventually his face begins to glow. It begins to emanate uh, light. The, the glory of God begins to, to reflect off of him. In fact, it gets so bad that, that the people actually ask him to wear a veil to cover it up because they can't stand to look at it. It's too much for them. And yet the thing about that compared to the transfiguration is that Moses, he's only reflecting the light of the glory of God, whereas with Jesus, as what we saw earlier, he isn't reflecting someone else's glory in the way that Moses did. No, Jesus himself is emanating and radiating his own glory. In other words, what I mean there is that Jesus is the source of his own glory, not someone else. You see, Moses reflected God's glory the way that the moon reflects the sun. But in Jesus, we see that he himself is the sun. He is the source. But not only is he the S-U-N son, he's the S-O-N son as we just read, right? I mean, the father just affirmed that. He just declared over the disciples, this is my son, my chosen one. You See, the thing is, as, as great as Moses and Elijah were, at the end of the day, they were still just God's servants. Whereas Jesus alone has the unique distinction of being the Son, the Chosen One. You see, the reason I think that the Father cuts off Peter in the middle of his suggestion is because Peter was confused. You see, because in suggesting to build a tent for each one of these three guys, Peter was essentially uh, putting them all on the same level. He was suggesting that they have the same amount of honor and glory, and yet God the Father is not having any of that. He very clearly makes it known, no, 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 Peter. Jesus is supreme. Jesus Christ is unique. He is the one and only loved Son of the Father. He is the chosen one. So again, what we see is that in this moment, the Father, he's, he's lavishing on Jesus all of this affirmation. And it's interesting because what he says is very similar to what he spoke over Jesus at his baptism. If you remember back in Luke 3, Jesus says something very similar, or the Father says something very similar to Jesus. But the main difference between what is said at his baptism and what is said here is not in so much what the Father says, but it's in terms of who he is addressing. You see, at the baptism, the Father is addressing Jesus, and he says to him, You are my beloved Son. You are, my, you, are, you are the one that I am well pleased with. Whereas here at the transfiguration, the Father is addressing the disciples, and he's pointing to Jesus, and he's saying, This is my beloved Son. This is my chosen one. 
You see, last week we talked about the significance of Jesus. And perhaps no more is that, that seen more clearly than in this moment. You see, you have two of Israel's greatest leaders and prophets standing with Jesus, and yet it is they who depart and Jesus who remains. In this moment, the Father says nothing about them. Instead, he is focusing on the Son. Again, Jesus is unique. He is supreme. He is the mediator of a new and better covenant, as it talks about in Hebrews. And the Father wants Peter and James and John, and he wants you and I to know that. He wants you to know that as my friend Mike Failer, one of our pastors, says all the time, there's no one like Jesus. And we see that here in this scene. You see, for the last several chapters in the Gospel of Luke, there has been a question that has been being continually asked. And the question is, who is Jesus? We heard it with the Pharisees when, when Jesus healed and, and pronounced that someone's sins were forgiven. They said, who, wait, 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 who can forgive sins but God alone? We heard it back in chapter 7 with John the Baptist when he sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one or should we expect another? We saw it in chapter 8 with his own disciples when he, when he calms the storm. When he, when he looks at the wind and the waves and he declares them to be still and then his disciples turn to one another and they say, who is this that commands the wind and the waves and they obey? See, they're asking, who is Jesus? We saw it at the beginning of chapter 9 when, when, when Pastor Pete taught uh, the, that Herod was confused by all of this. Herod was getting reports of all that Jesus was doing and, and he's confused. He's like, is, is this John the Baptist, the guy that I beheaded back from the dead? Or is this Elijah? Is this one of the prophets? Finally, we saw last week uh, that Jesus just straight up, he asked his disciples, he says, guys, who do people say that I am? And, and they're like, well, some say that you're John the Baptist or, or Elijah or one of the other prophets. And so he finally turns it around on them and he says, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Peter in that moment finally gets it right. He says, you are the Christ. In case there's any doubt left in the disciples' mind as to who Jesus is, or in case there's any doubt in the gospel or the, the readers of the gospel of Luke's mind about who Jesus is, we see the Father here at the Transfiguration emphatically answer that question. Who is Jesus? He's the Son. He's the Chosen One. And so this is the affirmation, but let's look at the last part of our story there, that being the command. Uh, look here at verse 35. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. You see, one of the things that's so amazing about what the Father says here in that command is that not only is it a command to be obeyed, but it too is a kind of affirmation. It's a way of pointing to who Jesus is, of pointing to his identity. You see, Moses was the prototype when it came to the prophets. He was essentially the first one. Now, Elijah maybe wasn't the prototype, but he was perhaps the most prominent prophet in Israel's history. And yet, if you look at the book of, the book of Deuteronomy, near the end of the Exodus, near the end of Moses' life, what you have is you have Moses, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, saying this in Deuteronomy 18.15. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. You see, with that in mind, what the Father is doing here at the transfiguration is he is pointing to Jesus and he is saying, this is that prophet that was talked about back in Deuteronomy 18. This is the new prophet that was 
uh, foretold that would come. And just so you guys understand and know, I'm going to have a Moses there, the prototype, and I'm going to have the prominent prophet Elijah there. That way they can witness to the fact that this is the prophet. But not only is he going to quote from there and, and say you are to listen to him, I mean, uh, I, I think because of that, it's, it, this, this actually affirms where, where Jesus, later on in Luke 24, he's going to be walking with a few of his disciples, and he's going to declare to them that basically everything in the Old Testament was about him. It was all pointing to him. He is the culmination of the scriptures. Now, the thing about this, and the, you know, the, it being a connection to Deuteronomy 18 and all of that, that's, the, the, the point is not that it would be some cute little Bible study answer or you know, something that you pull out at small group to impress your friends. Like, well, you know, when it says there that when the Father says listen to him, that that's actually a reference to Deuteronomy 18 and, and all of that. I mean, there, the connection is there. But more than that, God the Father wants you to obey it. This is a command to listen to Jesus. You see, for the disciples in the book of Luke, going forward, things are about to radically change. At the end of chapter 9, Jesus is going to very intentionally start heading towards Jerusalem, towards his death. And really, the rest of the Gospel of Luke is the, the story of him journeying in that direction. And along the way, Jesus is going to continually share with the disciples some pretty hard stuff. He's going to share with them some stuff that's going to be hard for them to understand. Some stuff that's going to be hard for them to obey. And yet here we have God the Father in a very dramatic way encouraging them and even instilling in them confidence in who Jesus is. And out of that, out of that, he now says, listen to him. So as we close here, I just want to ask you a very simple question. Are you listening to Jesus? Because here's what I know. None of us are going to default into listening and obeying him. You see, everything in our world and everything in your flesh, in your sinful flesh, and everything uh, about the enemy who hates you, all of that is trying to get you to not listen to Jesus. And so if you are not actively listening to him and following him and obeying him, then you are most likely drifting away from him. It may even be subtle. You may not even realize that it's happening. And that's sort of the scary thing about drifting. I remember Pastor Chris talking about this years ago, and it so impacted me, this idea of drifting. You see, when a ship sails towards a destination, it doesn't take all that much for it to get off course. You see, even small drifts along the way can lead to devastating consequences. You see, if I sail a boat from the United States to England, and somewhere in my journey, I get off course by a couple of inches, particularly early on, it, it might not seem like a big deal, but I can tell you I'm not going to end up where I'm trying to go. And the same is true for you in your Christian life. Even small drifts over time can have devastating consequences. And yet, uh, the problem is that I think that usually this is the way that it works. I mean, rarely does someone walk away from the Lord without having first had some serious moments of drift. Some moments where they stopped listening to and heeding the voice of God, the voice of Jesus. I don't know how many of you saw this this week, but, but there was kind of reverberating around the Christian world this week. We uh, were told that Joshua Harris uh, has, has, no, has walked away from his faith. 
Now, maybe for some of you that name doesn't sound familiar and, or you didn't hear the news, but, but basically Harris was a, a prolific evangelical author who, who wrote a Christian bestseller uh, book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye when he was just 21 years old. Uh, after that, he went on to lead a very large church, uh, which he took over and started to lead at the age of 30. About four years ago, though, he stepped down from being a pastor, and his, his reasons were to pursue some more education and to pursue some other things. But about a month ago, he announced that he and his wife were getting a divorce. And then about a week and a half ago, he announced on Instagram that he no longer considers himself a Christian. And again, if you've never heard of this guy, you might feel like, oh, well, I mean, who cares? People walk away from the church all the time. But if you have heard of him, if you've read his books, if you've listened to his sermons and have been impacted and helped by them, this announcement is both painful and it's confusing. And I know that I have personally felt some of those feelings this week. I mean, whether or not we want to, the reality is, is that as believers, it's so easy for us to put other Christians on pedestals. And I know we, we know we shouldn't do it, and we, we know like it always leads to bad things, and yet we, we can't help it. And yet when, when, a, when a Christian leader, or a prominent Christian author, or pastor, or whatever, or even just a friend... Whenever someone walks away or, or morally disqualifies himself or any of that, it's, it's devastating for us. Again, it leads us feeling baffled and confused. I think for some of us, it can even make us feel threatened in our own faith. And we just think to ourselves, how could something like this happen? Well, what I want to tell you is that usually it doesn't happen overnight. There's a drift. And so again, I just want to ask you, today, in this moment, in this season of your life, I don't care what prayer you prayed five years ago or ten years ago, right now, are you listening to Jesus? Are you listening to his voice, his word, his truth, or are you slowly drifting towards the voice of the world? And look, if you kind of sit down and, and do an honest assessment and you say, you know what, I, I think I have started to drift a little bit. I've started to compromise in, in, in the way that I view things and, and the things even I'm starting to believe, well, uh, you know, just, just to be fair, it's honestly not that surprising. I mean, right now, we live in a moment where, where the world is increasingly hostile uh, towards Jesus. It's hostile to his, his word and his church. And so if you're feeling some of that, if you're absorbing some of that pressure, it's honestly not that surprising that, that the temptation to drift would occur. I mean, the temptation to drift is always there. I mean, you know, the, the hymn we always sing, uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? We, we, we know that that's there, but it becomes increasingly more tempting when hostility and suffering increase. But in all of that, you and I, we have a choice to make. We can give in, we can cave, we can cater to culture's way of seeing things, and, and some are doing that, and some will continue to do that, or we can listen to Jesus, Right? We can listen, we can obey the Father's command, and we can listen to Jesus. You see, here's the thing. Jesus shared some really hard things with his disciples. He shared with them some things that challenged their way of seeing things, that challenged their assumptions. He, he shared with them some things that if they believed it, it would cause them to, to become unpopular. In fact, not only would it cause them to be unpopular, but it actually would, would end up getting them killed. And that's why church history tells us that basically all of the disciples were killed for their faith, for listening to Jesus. And yet, why were they willing to do that? 
Why were they willing to listen to him and to follow him regardless of the consequences? Well, I think the reason they were willing to do that is because they knew that what they had seen and what they had heard and that what the Old Testament scriptures talked about all were true. They knew it. They knew that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. They knew that he was the promised Messiah, the chosen one. And therefore, they listened to him. I mean, Peter, near the end of his life, in, in the book of 2 Peter, when he's in the midst of fighting all of this, this uh, false prophets and false teachers that were trying to infiltrate the church and were trying to lead them astray, in that moment, when he was writing his, his letter to combat that, he leans back into this experience that we read about today with the transfiguration. In fact, in 2 Peter 1, it says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, through humans, or prophets though human, spoke from God as they were carried on by the Holy Spirit. You see, what Peter is saying here is he fights against these false teachers. As against this false doctrine that was trying to lead the church astray, what he's saying is, you want to know why I'm, I'm sticking with Jesus? You want to know why I'm listening to, to his voice and why I'm not following these false teachers and, and walking away from the truth? It's because unlike them, I was actually there. I was an eyewitness. I was on the mountain. I saw Jesus' glory. I heard the voice from heaven that said, this is my son. And Peter's like, look, the thing is, is not only did my, my experience, uh, not only did I experience that, but the scriptures actually back all that up. The scriptures point to Jesus, and they are completely reliable. The prophetic word is completely reliable. And, and he also adds in here, and, and just so you know, these prophets, they didn't do this on their own human will. No, these prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God was speaking through them as they wrote by the Holy Spirit. And so I think the reason that Peter was willing to listen to Jesus, the reason that he was willing to follow Jesus, even though it would end up getting him killed, is because he was convinced that what he experienced and what the scriptures taught about Jesus was true. And so, yeah, I just want to circle back around to this question. Are you listening to Jesus? You see, we didn't read it earlier, but in the Deuteronomy passage where it talks about this new prophet that's going to come after Moses, the passage actually continues and it says this. I will, this is God the Father, this is, the, this is God speaking now. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, from among your, their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to all of them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will re re require it of him. One translation says there, it says, I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen. 
See, what the Father is saying there is that there will be consequences to not listening to Jesus. You will be held accountable in, how, in terms of how well and how much you listened and followed Jesus. And so my challenge for you and for myself this morning is this. Guys, let's be a church that listens to Jesus. Let's be a church that follows him, that looks to him, and that obeys him even when it costs us, even when it makes us unpopular in the world's eyes. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful story. Thank you that the disciples woke up in time to witness it. Father, I just ask that even as we move into worship now, as we continue to sing, I just pray that in each of our hearts, Jesus would be glorified. God, and, and what, however you want it to look, I just ask even now that the veil would just be lifted for a second, Lord. That you would create a thin place where we can see Jesus in his glory. Thank you that right now, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And thank you that one day he is going to return for us. And so, Lord, I just pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you help us to be a church that listens to Jesus, that obeys the command to listen to him, to follow him, and to obey him. And I pray this in his name. Amen.